This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by Acts 29 with an invitation to their 2024 Next Conference happening April 15th through the 17th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss this great lineup of speakers, including Sam Albury, Matt Chandler, Brian Loritz, John Piper, and more. The Next Conference will equip and encourage church planters and church leaders of all types for church ministry. To learn more and register for Next, visit acts29.com slash next. TGC podcast listeners will receive a special discount of $20 off registration prices by using the code TGC. Again, visit acts29.com slash next. That's acts29.com slash next. This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by LifeWay, publisher of The Sermon on the Mount Bible Study by Jen Wilkin. In this nine-session study, Wilkin invites readers to examine and learn from Jesus' longest recorded message and challenge themselves to think differently about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. With your purchase, you'll also receive access to this study's video sessions. Get your copy today at lifeway.com slash sermon on the mount. You're listening to the Gospel Coalition Podcast, equipping the next generation of believers, pastors, and church leaders to shape life and ministry around the gospel. On today's episode, you'll hear from Russ Ramsey and Sandra McCracken as they discuss the role the imagination plays in reading, understanding, and conveying the content of scripture. This breakout session was originally held at TGC's 2019 National Conference in Indianapolis. My name is Russ. I am a pastor in Nashville, Tennessee uh, with Christ Presbyterian Church. We're a multi-site campus, uh, and I pastor one of those sites. So I'm the regular preacher and pastor at a location there in Cool Springs. Uh, I've been in ministry for close to 20 years. Now, most of that time as a lead pastor, most of that time as somebody who has been uh, preaching week in and week out, um, I'll let you, you want to introduce yourself now? Okay, okay. Um, you, yeah. So um, so one of the things that uh, Sandra and I talked about this breakout session, um, gosh, several months ago, uh, and wanting to do this because both of us work in this area where we curate words and ideas uh, largely through uh, interacting directly with Scripture and then communicating that to rooms full of people. And so I do that through uh, preaching, through sermon writing, uh, through teaching. I also do that through writing and authoring, uh, and Sandra through speaking and through music as well. And so we're always thinking about, and we're both artists uh, and have an artistic mindset for um, just thinking about how to communicate in general. And so we're, we're always kind of thinking through specifically what role does does artistry play uh, in the crafting of words and in the communicating of scripture? And you can't have that conversation without without talking about the role of the roles of imagination and wonder and mystery and even paradox. Uh, that those are essential to to communicating uh, biblical truth well, because that's part of the nature of scripture. And so that's kind of what we want to talk about. Um, this afternoon. Uh, so as somebody who's working with scripture, 
uh, one of the things that that you should know about me is I have a very high view of Scripture. Uh, I believe it's inerrant. I believe it's authoritative. I believe it's reliable. Um, I believe that Scripture is God's Word. So, so when I think about engaging Scripture with uh, my imagination up and running, um, it's not because there's anything deficient in Scripture, uh, but rather it's because I believe that Scripture, to be read well, requires uh, an engaged imagination. So Scripture tells us not to add anything to it, not to take anything away from it. So what role does the imagination play in seeking to faithfully understand and interpret a passage of Scripture? So I want to give you part of my thesis uh, for for what we're going to be talking about here uh, in this session, and that's this. I believe that in order to faithfully interpret Scripture, we have to come to it with an engaged imagination. We must seek to flesh out the words that we're reading. And I'm going to talk about why. Um, but we have to be people who, when we're coming to the pages of Scripture, we're imagining. We're imagining the scenes that are being described for us. We're considering the implications of the details that are provided. And Scripture is rich in detail, but it's also very thrifty um, in the way that it's written. So Scripture calls for this sort of reading. And I'm going to give you kind of two before I hand it over to Sandra. Um, two reasons why uh, Scripture calls for reading with an engaged imagination. The first reason is that Scripture is written in thrift. So when you're reading a biblical text, you're reading uh, before a time when you could go to FedEx Kinko's and buy reams of paper and print things out. There are not a lot of rabbit trails in Scripture. There's not a lot of waxing eloquent. There's not a lot of belaboring a point because... Just the, the, the mechanics and the tools and the resources available to write something down was, was an extremely limited capacity, especially early on. It was, it was you know, you, to, to, to have pen and ink and vellum or parchment or something like that. Scripture is not <clears throat> super uh, flowery, Right in the way that it's written. And so there's lots of gaps, but that's how literature works, right? Whenever you read a novel, whenever you read a poem, whenever you read anything, your imagination kicks in and begins to fill out the scene. And scripture's no different. So scripture's written in thrift, and it gives us details <coughs> that are there to help us imagine a scene that's happening. Uh, so that's how literature works, one, is, is one of the reasons why we have to read with an engaged imagination. That's how literature works. The, the other reason is because that's how people work. That's how human beings work, right, is, is that Scripture describes the human experience. And the human experience is more than just six application points that you take away from a passage, Right, that when you're reading a scripture passage, <clears throat> there's something going on. Oftentimes, it's narrative because most of the Bible is written in narrative, and there are things happening, and, and we're obligated to, uh, within the reasonable confines of what we understand about the human experience, to infer. Now, to hold those inferences with an open hand, if it's not on the page, and we're inferring, okay. But. You're, how are you supposed to understand Scripture if you're not trying to empathize or get into a situation and walk around inside of it? So, for example, if you're reading a passage of Scripture where a man's son dies, if we don't seek to imagine the grief of that moment, 
how are we possibly going to be able to relate to the response, right? And so when David and Bathsheba conceive and the baby dies, David mourns and he grieves and then he cleans himself up and he, and he moves forward with his life, there's a lot of emotional freight carried in that story that's not written out long form, but it's there to help us understand the character of David, also the character of grief, also the reality of the consequences of the sin that was involved there. So we're meant to read scripture, I guess this is as simple a way as I can say it, we're meant to read scripture as human beings and not as mere data collectors. Uh, We're meant to immerse ourselves in the story and scripture is mostly story. And engaging with those stories is often where the truth and the mystery and the wonder and the beauty um, comes to life, so. Um, Well, uh, so I'm Sandra and um, there is a lot of overlap between kind of where Russ and I are both coming from in the sense of, I guess it was a few months ago and we started talking about this workshop. We were doing an event with other songwriters and Russ was reading passages from his books and we were singing songs right, you know, back to back. And it was, um, I think I'm pretty thrilled by scripture. I think it um, never ceases to amaze me how it, it it does this imaginative work in our hearts, even as we do imaginative work in responding to it. There's this reciprocation that happens and it's inclusive. So it's for you. It's for you. And it's for everybody in the sense that you don't have to have qualifications to bring to that. And um, just the very nature of that scripture is alive. So when we ponder these stories, when we ponder these words and we try, like you said, try them on, um, when we eat the words, when we take them in, I remember from being a really small child and um, writing down little sections of scripture on an index card And then those things would be called to my mind by the Holy Spirit at different times. And um, I had a real gift in both um, mentors and my mom who were able to point at that and show me, you know, evidence of that and help me to pay attention to this, like this dance of interaction between the Holy Spirit and the words and then Jesus himself, who is the word, right? So all of this kind of relational um, context around the words of scripture. So for me, vocationally, um, I'm a songwriter and I started that, um, I've been in Nashville now for quite a while. I, I grew up in Missouri, moved to Nashville, was really intrigued by, um, all the music culture there. And, but I'm a little bit resistant to the categories of Christian music. And I found myself kind of in this in-between genres, which is significant in the sense that I was still writing scripture songs, even if I was just playing, um, even if I wasn't like seen as a Christian artist. And it was the, I think it's, um, it's true no matter what your vocation is, that, that when we are soaked in the scriptures, when we live under the authority of scripture when we believe that it holds truth above and around us for our lives, like that there's something, um, we can submit ourselves to that, um, we can go to for light and for truth and for correction and for like in the story of David, it's like having somewhere to go and to recognize that you are not the first one to experience what you're experiencing and to hear these stories that come alive off the pages. Um, so my, 
my contribution is less um, is um, less in the pastoral space, but more in just to kind of by demonstration, maybe play little bits of songs throughout this time together to show how scripture has shown up for me and how imagination has been part of that in a, in a profound way and not in a way that I was orchestrating for myself. But my hope is that the, there would be permission for you to find whatever your vocation, um, that this is a doorway, that scripture, that there's this open doorway to interact with the spirit of God, to know God more um, vividly in your vocational and family and relational life because the scripture is alive in you. So this is one, a song that I was like on my, uh, maybe my second album, which has been um, a while ago, and I'll just play a little bit of it, but I was having trouble, um, I mean, this is the simplest thing, but I was having trouble sleeping at the time, and this song kind of sparked out of that experience, and it's, it, it is based on Psalm 139, um, and I wouldn't have categorized it or thought, oh, this is a Christian music song or whatever. It's just, it was just a song. And, um, and yet you hear some of those words as I, I'll sing a little bit for you, but, um, and, uh, please forgive me. I'm a little short of breath. I I'm seven months pregnant, (laughs) um, but so play guitar for you side saddle. Um, but, um, this, yeah, so this one, Psalm 139 is one I remember, um, from when I was young, just this, uh, the intimacy that, that, the psalmist is saying, oh, Lord, you have searched me and you've known me. You know, when I sit down and when I rise up, you perceive my thoughts from afar. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. And I, I just, there is just a profound sense that we are wandering around in this world wanting to know that. And when you're awake and you can't sleep, um, to, to have these words given to us in scripture saying, you are not alone. You are so known. And then the lines later in the psalm, it says, um, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And even lines like that, that we have to stop and say, what does it mean to be fearfully made? I have no idea what that means. And then we ponder it and we enter into it. And then we find that we are changed and formed by it. So um, I don't have this plugged in or anything, but I'll just sing a little bit for you. It's a song called Now and Then. I know where I'm bound And where I'm chained And where I'm left alone I know no hunger And I feel no pain But tonight I want to go home Stay Sing me a song so I can close my eyes. Before I was born, all of my days recorded. Your thoughts are like the grains of sand. Through the wide-eyed nights And in the morning light 
as my days demand Stay with me Sing me a song so I can close my eyes. Sing me a song so I can close my eyes. Sorry to make you stay. <laughs> Thank you. How many of you are um, teachers who teach scripture to people, whether in a pulpit or in a classroom? How many? Look, I see a show of hands. So, so then we we probably have this in common, uh, or, and just anybody who reads scripture, and that is the the desire to help make application for people, right? And so, when I was taking seminary classes and we were learning how to preach. I uh, had Dr. Brian Chapel, um, and his you know his framework was was um, exposition, illustration, application. You know those were kind of the three. If you had a sermon point, you would exposit it, then you would give an illustration, and then you would make direct application. And uh, my, I'm having kind of an artistic temperament. My mind does not really work super fluidly when it comes to drawing direct applications to make to people. Let me tell you seven things you need to do in response to this passage. And for a long time, I, I kind of felt that that was a deficiency. I think it still is in some ways. I think I've known people who can make application of Scripture in ways that I just think, how in the world uh, did you just do that? Um, but I also think that Scripture itself, if you, if you if you read it, there there are certain texts that are all about. Here is a direct application for you. You know, do this, don't do that. Uh, when this happens, here's how you should respond. But when you look at the the ministry of Jesus and you look at his method of teaching, what did he use more often than anything else to teach? Story right? He told stories. And he even told stories in such a way that hearers would say, could somebody please explain to us what just happened, right? Could you tell us what, what are we supposed to make of this? And I think there's something beautiful about um, the way that so many of the stories in Scripture, they resolve on the on they don't resolve on the dominant note. They, there's a dissonance to them. There's a complexity to them. There's a, um, uh, I just preached this past Sunday on um, the, the passage in the upper room where, where Jesus uh, says that one of them is going to betray him and everybody asks the question, is it I? No one suspected Judas in that room. And the one thing Jesus didn't do is he didn't, exposed Judas to everybody in that moment. He didn't say, one of you will betray me, and it's him, right? He didn't, he didn't do that. 
He said, one of you will betray me. He he revealed it to John and Peter kind of privately through this little transaction of the one I hand the bread to that I dip in the bowl. That's the one. But Judas didn't even seem to know that he was that that when he handed the when Jesus handed the bread to him, it was a sign to, to those two guys. And that story is has a lot of application for dealing with slander. Right? You have a person who is about to betray you and you know it. And so what do you do? Well, it's a story, it's a true story. But it's a story, so it's not prescriptive in the sense of Jesus. what Jesus did with Judas is what everybody should always do all the time, because Jesus confronted other people very directly. But in that moment, he was compassionate to Judas, and one of the ways he was compassionate to Judas was by not burning him to the ground in that moment, but by letting him have every opportunity up to the very end to repent, by not humiliating him, by not exposing him, even by telling him, go do what you have to do and do it, and do it quickly. Um, Jesus got in his ear, he got in his head, he got in his heart, you know. And, and so we read stories like that, and Jesus taught in parables. And I think there's something about, as a preacher, um, or as a communicator of Scripture, or as a reader of Scripture, doing the work of saying, okay, I want to engage with the, with the, the nuance of the text and really try to understand what's happening here. Eugene Peterson, the late Eugene Peterson, um, who is, uh, he's written a lot about this. Here, here, I'm going to read a quote from him, and then um, he said this. He said, story is the most adequate way we have of accounting for our lives. Noticing the obscure details that turn out to be pivotal, appreciating the subtle accents of color and form and scent that give texture to our actions and our feelings, giving coherence to our meetings and relationships and work and family, finding our precise place in the neighborhood and in history. Story engages the whole person. And it's, it's not always a straight line. And that's helpful for us because our lives don't follow that course either. Children are great examples of this. Children do not want to be told seven rules for life when you're tucking them in, they want to be told a story, right? And part of the reason a child wants to hear a story, it's not just because they like the characters, and they would, most kids would not articulate this back to you. Some of you may have the most intelligent child in the world who would say this back, um, but most kids wouldn't. But what they're doing is they're comprehending life. They're hearing stories and they're understanding there's good and there's evil, there's tension, there's conflict, there's the consequences of dishonesty, there's, there's the, the nobility of, of self-sacrifice, and they're learning this in the form of story. Uh, Sandra and I are both, I'm going to name drop, I'm sorry, we're both friends with uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones who wrote the Jesus Storybook Bible, and it's, it's an incredible, incredible resource. And she gets to go around and she gets to, um, you know, go to churches and, and tell the story of Scripture in a way that, that both kids and adults alike uh, just marvel at the simplicity and the clarity of this. Uh, she was telling me uh, that she was at a church once, and she was uh, you know reading to the Sunday school class, and they were talking about the story of Jonah, and so she was reading from the Jesus Storybook Bible. And something happened where the, um, the, t- the regular teacher of the class got got called out and had to leave and said to Sally, uh, just finish the story and then just kind of help them, you know, 
uh, kind of make some, some life application with this. And so she said she remembers telling the story of Jonah and the whale and how the kids are just, you know, their chins on their elbows, leaning in, listening, absorbing it. And then she asked a question to the effect of, okay, so what do you think God wants us to learn from this story? What are some takeaways? And she said she could just see the kids disengage. She could just see them kind of lose the thread. Uh, because now we had moved from narrative and we had moved from, from, from telling the story into, okay, what's the lesson? What's the moral? What's the point? And I want to say this carefully because we're in a, we're in a room that, and we're at a conference that has, and I have a high view of Scripture and believe that it's an authoritative rule for life and practice. So Scripture is full of application. But what I'm saying is I think there's value in taking a story on its own terms. I remember as a college student um, going to the movies. We had, a, we had a dollar theater in our town, and I'm, I'm a guy. I don't, does anybody go to movies by themselves? Is, anybody, is that your preferred way to go to a movie? Yeah, it is, uh, it's, it's what we call these, this day and age self-care. Um, <laughs> I love going to movies by myself, and I took myself uh, to see uh, the movie River Runs Through It. When it, when it first came out. And I remember sitting in the theater as a, as a college student watching this movie play out. And it was like a key in a lock and the tumblers all just kind of aligned and a door opened and I understood my own relationship with my dad and my brother in a way that I didn't even know I needed to understand my relationship with my dad and my brother. And I, I just sat in the theater and wept. And if you've ever seen that movie, it's a great movie. One of the things that movie does not do is draw a lot of conclusions for you. But man, what a story. What a story. And scripture is full of these. It's full of these, scripture, these, these stories that have detail, and you look for the detail, and when you see them, they just carry so much weight and so much, so much significance to them. Uh, uh, before, uh, an example is when Abraham and Sarah are trying to conceive, right? And they can't, but God has said, you're going to be the father of a great nation. And they're like, with what? And so... Sarah has the idea for Abraham to sleep with her maidservant, Hagar. And Sarah, or in Abraham, in what had, could not have been enough time, uh, said yes, right? She said, I have an idea, and he said, that's a great idea, right? And so he sleeps with, with, with Hagar, and they have Ishmael. And then Sarah hates Hagar and Ishmael. Because you know what? That's human. That's what we do, right? She, her, her word became flesh and was now dwelling among them, and she hated it. Uh, and so she says, send them out of here. Which send them out of here was not make them move out of town. It was make them go into the wilderness where they're not going to live. They're going to die. In that day and age, it wasn't like, you know, send them on down to Louisville. I don't want them in Indianapolis anymore, right? It was, send them out into the wilderness. And that passage 
when Hagar and Ishmael go out, it says, and you can see this in your text, that, that Hagar sets the boy down. And then this, this is the detail that's right there on your page. She went and sat a bow shot away. That's the language. A bow shot away. Friends, if, if your imagination is not meant to get engaged with the dropping of the word bow shot, you've not understood that passage. Because that word is a word of death. And it's a word of one person killing another. And it's the distance between a mother and a son in a desert. And that should break your heart. And that should lead to compassion for people, right? And that should, that should be so formative. I mean, even right here in this room right now, me just telling you that, I heard the sounds that came back. That wasn't because I made an application. It's because we pulled out a detail, a narrative detail, that we all said, oh, gosh, I, I, I resonate with that. I get that. So rather than reading stories simply to extract life lessons, we should mine them. We should see them as these multi-layered things and try to get, because truth, truth lives in them. I'm uh, so glad you mentioned um, children in um, sharing some of that. A couple of years ago, wanting to get involved in like writing some children's songs with some friends and thinking about this whole idea of what it is to share that. Our first rec- our first project, it was called Rain for Roots, and our first project was with Sally Lloyd-Jones, and it was her poems, so it was just like easy. We don't have to really overthink this. And then the second project, we were like, oh, well, let's do the parables. That would be so great. We'll just tell stories. And then we got into them, and we are like, these are so hard to explain. <laughs> like, how are you going to tell these stories in a way that um, that is theologically sound when I really have a hard time understanding what correlation or what are the things, what are the conclusions we're supposed to draw? And it was such a wonderful exercise. And I think it caused us to live in the space that you're talking about, where you draw out the details and hold them up, and then you are not answering all the questions all the time. And one of the, one of the um, little stories that we focused on was one about the, it's in a, it's in a couple of the gospels. It's a very short little bit in between a bunch of other stories where Jesus just talks about a woman making bread and, um, and just the Santa, I mean, that was kind of it. Like the kingdom of heaven is like a woman making bread. And we were so, we researched it and, and we do really care about the telling of scripture, but then you had differing opinions on theologically. What would, um, it's time to get up. Um, what would be the thing like some people would say that the the leaven was bad and some people would say it was good. So we tried to just kind of sit with it and pray and read through the commentaries and then just bring out our guitars and see what happened. So this song resulted in that, uh, was the result of that. And as we tried not to draw those strong conclusions, we found ourselves um, creatively in this space of longing and living in this space of longing. And once the song was finished and we played it back, we were all pretty moved by the, um, the theme that the kingdom of heaven and the waiting, this, the, the visual, the imaginative visual was basically like when we make bread with our kids, um, 
And this goes back to the fact that this is for all of us. This is for all of our communities. But when we make bread with our kids and with the neighbors and with the neighbors' kids, um, there is a sense of like, you, well, not a sense. You actually see the little kids around the table peeking up over the edges, putting their fingers in it. You know, it's physical, it's tangible, it's real. And then the smell and the anticipation and the hunger and then you put all these layers together and you begin to see a picture of what it is to wait for the things that are not yet, the things that we need, the things that we have been promised. And, and somewhere in all that, we found, um, found our way through the text. So this song called Leaven Bread. Make sure you guys can hear me. I want to tell you another story All about a woman making barley bread water out on the table. We need a little leaven, she said. So she works. She works. She works to make some leaven into flour. She works. She works. She works to make the barley bread. And mama, mama, how much longer longer for the dough to rise oh my children don't you worry you just gotta wait till the time is right so they wait they wait they wait while the dough is rising rising they wait they wait they wait for the barley bread And this is the story of the kingdom of heaven. This is what the storyteller Jesus said. The kingdom of heaven is just like a leaven. We work to raise up that barley bread. So we wait, we wait, we wait. While the kingdom's coming, coming, we wait, we wait. We wait while the kingdom's coming, coming. We wait, we wait, we wait for the kingdom to come. We wait for the kingdom to come. Thanks. This is so much fun. This is just so much fun. I know. It's well. I was thinking as you were singing that. I was thinking about how, um, you know, what was happening there was Jesus told a story that got written down in Scripture, that has been preserved through time, that songwriters then took and tried to figure out how to tell it to children through music. That's just fantastic. But that's the that's the beauty and the reach, right? Of of of, of narrative and, and human beings trying to communicate things to each other. Uh, I love that. That's so good. That's so good. All right, we're going to do a little exercise together on this. Um, if, you, if you have a Bible, I'll read the text. It's a short one. But in John 12, verses 3 through 7, we're going to look at that in a minute because I want us to do a little exercise in uh, specifically in mining a text for details and then imagining. 
Um, and so we're going to do this together. But, uh, but I think when, when we use the details that are provided in a passage, what they do is they engage the imagination and we start linking things together. So assuming that nothing in Scripture is just a throwaway word, that it's all there because the Holy Spirit is involved in the uh, the uh, you know the accounting the writing of scripture and the preservation of scripture and the illumination of scripture in the life of the believer then we take those details and we mine them and we try to link them together in order to try to get a sense of the fuller picture of what's happening to try to understand and move from being just a reader of a page to being a witness right and so that's that's kind of the idea is we're moving from being a reader of a printed page and that's it to being somebody who is gaining a sense of being a witness to what's happening. And so scripture's filled with passages that require imagination if we're to grasp them. And this is one um, where Mary, who is, let me give you some details about this that are not, not in the passage. Mary, who is Mary uh, of Mary and Martha and Lazarus fame. Um, so Mary would be, I think if you think about how Mary and Martha and Lazarus are depicted in scripture, the way I would describe them is they're Jesus' friends which is a beautiful thought to me, that outside of his disciples, Jesus had people in his life that were just friends. And when he went to Jerusalem, he stayed with them in Bethany right across the valley there. And it makes, me, makes you wonder, like the imagination engages, does, are these childhood friends? Are these people that, because Jesus would always go with his family to the feasts in Jerusalem, and they would always have to stay somewhere, and they stayed with, presuming they stayed with people because it wasn't a hotel culture, right? And so they stayed with people. And so is it possible? I don't know. But is it possible that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were, were friends of Jesus? They certainly lit up uh, when he came around. They referred to him in intimate ways. They referred to himself, uh, to themselves in intimate ways in relation to him. To him. Like when Lazarus gets sick, they say, the one you love is ill. Um, anyway, so Mary, uh, the, the timetable of this passage this, is this would be uh, the Wednesday of Holy Week. So the very next day is the day Jesus is going to be arrested. Uh, and so, and so, this is what happens. I'm going to read the passage, and then what I want to ask you is, I want you to tell me details that caught your, that sparked your imagination. Okay. So it says, Mary therefore, <coughs> sorry, right into the, right into the mic. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Okay. Short passage. Many of you are probably familiar with that. But in looking at the text, what are some details that jumped out at you? Yeah. She wiped his feet with her hair. What's in that detail? What's that? It's the second time it happened. This has happened before. But it, it, and in that detail itself, that's intimate, right? That's, that is a... a uh, I'm assuming... That doesn't happen to you regularly, right? Feet were dirty. Yeah. What else? Yeah. 
It's a pound of perfume, right, right. It's worth, you know, it's worth a year's wages. Um, that 300 denarii there, did I read that right? Um, it's denarii a day. You know, this is worth a year's, a year's wages. So this was, this was I liken this to, it's like, it's like she uncorked a $50,000 bottle of champagne, you know, if you want to think of it that way. What else? Yes, the fragrance filled the room. What? Yeah, yeah. Anybody else? So I'm going to read a passage. Um, in a, I think I'll just read it now. It seems like the time to do that. Um, so it's, it's the Wednesday before his arrest. It's a, it's a pound of perfume. It's John talks about specifically what kind of perfume it was. It was nard, made from pure nard. And, and what that was, I did some research on this perfume. When I was writing this book, uh, The Passion of the King of Glory, this is a narrative retelling of the, of the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And one of my, one, my commitments in writing this book was I, wanted to, I, want to give a, I want to make a biblical literacy tool for people who have never read scripture or, or are new to scripture. Because as a pastor, what I'm finding is we live in a biblically illiterate age. Uh, and I don't mean that as an insult. I mean it as a, as a um, very specifically, most people have not read the Bible. Um, many Christians have not read the Bible. Uh, you know, the, the, the source material on which their faith is based, they're generally unfamiliar with. And so as a pastor, part of, part of the job is to provide biblical literacy in the teaching and also inspire biblical literacy through the way that you teach. And so um, so in, in writing about this passage and thinking about this passage, I started doing some research. I found out, okay, so nard is, is it was almost like a, like, a, like, a, like a honey type of consistency, only instead of being sticky, it was oil. It was an oil-based, like a thick honey. So she's, she's putting a pound of this on Jesus, and the, the aroma is filling the room, okay? And it's a culture that doesn't shower, it doesn't bathe regularly, and so part of the purpose of the perfume was hygienic, it was, it was to mask odor, it was also to give a scent to a person. It's 24 hours later, Jesus is going to be, or ish, is going to be arrested and that night he's going to be taken into the high priest's courtyard and he's going to be beaten up. And then he's going to stand before Pilate. And it got the wheels turning about, here's this really expensive perfume that only like wealthy people, royalty would, 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 would just use to the fact that when Mary uses it on Jesus, the reaction here is Judas, but just a couple days later, or a couple days earlier, it happened another time with somebody else anointing him with expensive perfume. And everybody reacted like, why, why are they wasting this? But perfume is not meant to be a commodity, first and foremost. Perfume is meant to be spilled out, right? It's meant to, f- it's, the aroma is, is the point, of perfume, the, 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 the assault on the senses, right, of the perfume. And so I got into this, and, I, and it just struck me that in those hours as Jesus is being arrested and tried and flogged and crucified, he smells opulent. 
And I think we're supposed to get that. You know, we're supposed to, especially a first century reader is going to say, he left a lingering scent as he went down the Via Dolorosa, and it was the scent of royalty, and it was the scent of extravagance. And so I wrote about that, and I'm going to read an excerpt from it just just to see a little bit of this in practice in uh, how I approached it. In these, and one of the things that I did in these books is I include, there's hundreds of scripture references in the back um, that point to the text because one of the things I didn't want to do is I didn't want to create characters, you know, I didn't want to give like Pontius Pilate a Cruella DeVille cigarette and a mustache that he was twisting. You know, like I didn't want to like do that kind of thing, but but I wanted to say, okay, there are details here that have significance to them. And so I'm going to try to mine them. And when I see them, I'm going to try to art articulate them, and express them. Uh, so I'm going to read this, and then Sandra can um, talk a little bit, sing, we can do some Q&A after that, and then we'll, we'll close with a song together. Um, all right. While they reclined around Simon's table, Mary, Lazarus's sister, came into the room carrying a stone-hewn bottle. She handled the flask as though it were a rare and precious jewel. Knowing what it was, her brother leaned forward in his seat. His sister had been saving this bottle for a long time. Many times she had told Lazarus and Martha what she meant to do with it. The steel-sewn bottle was made of an Egyptian alabaster. It held a pound of exotic Arabian perfume called nard. The costly scent fetched close to a day's wage for a day's supply. So it belonged mostly to the wealthy and powerful. Arabian nard was the scent of opulence, the fragrance of those whose needs had been met and wanted for nothing. Over the years, Mary's family had saved a half liter of the exotic fragrance equal to a full year's wage, and now Mary was its keeper. Mary took a seat on the floor beside Jesus, turning the bottle in her hands as the men talked. Gripping the bottle with both hands, she broke the neck, and the scent of kings wafted up, filling the room with a fragrance that brought an instinctively reverent silence. Then, with every eye now on her, she began to pour the oil-based perfume on Jesus' head so that it saturated his scalp, filtered into the sides of his beard, and wicked through his garments and onto his shoulders and back. After, she used, after this, she used what remained to anoint his feet, It was an intimate moment between friends. Jesus had given Mary so much, not only by saving her brother, but also by being her friend. Though her sister Martha expressed her love through cooking and serving, Mary was a woman of extravagance when it came to giving the gift of unhurried time. The perfume gave her time with Jesus, and she wanted to spend it all. Mary regarded the perfume, many regarded the perfume Mary poured over Jesus' head and feet as her only security for the future. They immediately began to question her judgment, but this was no whim, it was Mary's response to what Jesus had given her. He had brought her brother back from the dead and then promised to do the same with her. In this promise, she sensed that Jesus meant to give her something more and wouldn't stop until he was finished. So in return, she gave Jesus everything she had. She anointed her king's head with the oil in the presence of his enemies. 
and made lovely the feet of this one who had brought her so much good news. The disciples reacted as men often do. They thought about the value of her perfume. It seemed a waste. They thought about how they might have capitalized on the nard's value if it were theirs. To voice such dreams seemed vulgar, but something needed to be said, so they dressed their indignation in the noble auspices of concern for the poor. They said to each other, think of the poor people who could have benefited from the sale of this perfume. Hearing this, Jesus came to Mary's defense, leave her alone, for what she has done is beautiful. You will always have the poor, but you won't always have me. The men in the room regarded that alabaster bottle as a commodity that Mary should have held on to in the event that she needed to trade it in. But what were such fragrances for? Perfume was meant to be spilled out and evaporated in order that it might fill a room with its beautiful and startling aroma. As the scent electrified the senses of everyone present, Jesus called it beautiful. Creation testified to a maker who delighted in beauty for beauty's sake. And many things in their world were beautiful that didn't need to be because God opted to make them that way. This could be for only two reasons. Because beauty pleased him and so that he might arrest people by their senses to wake them from the slumbering economy of pragmatism. Um, In our time together, as we're kind of winding down, um, that reading is such an invitation. No matter where we're coming from, what your vocation is, what your roles are, um, that you would hear the call to engage fully with your imagination in Scripture and be changed by it. Um, and it's really the invitation for all of us, and it's um, evidence of the life of the Spirit in you, and um, and it's a joyful participation. It's not like a, hey, you got to do this, you know, 10 minutes every day. It's like, oh, wow, what if I thought... Um, what if I just brought my whole self to the scripture, sat with it, you know, maybe study, like have opportunities very practically, like having times where you are with the word of God and with the stories and with the details in such a way that you allow the spirit to speak to you, not just try to figure it out. And that light a candle, um, give yourself, you know, a little more time and, see what emerges. And I, I have seen that the spirit is ready and eager to bring out and to bring forward these kinds of insights. And it's, um, it's not really our invitation. And if it, if this feels accidentally devotional as a workshop, I, I'm happy (laughs) that there would be a sense, this is not just our invitation. This is, um, there's one calling you to be with him in this. And, um, and there's so much joy in that because the richness of the text and the um, and what is contained in it is meant to give life and not just for you, but through you and in the world and in the kingdom. So this is a little <clears throat> song that um, my guitar is going to be kind of quiet, but it's kind of based on that idea. Mm-hmm. Come to Jesus. He will never cast you out Come you thirsty Put aside your fear, your doubt With great gentleness 
With great gentleness He draws you How He draws you See how He draws you To Himself Come to Jesus He will satisfy your heart With His presence Be your lantern in the dark With great gentleness With great gentleness He draws you How He draws you See how he draws you to himself. Let's do a little Q&A. Anybody have any questions for either of us? Yeah, back there. Uh, the question is, who, who do we, we learn from? In doing this, you know, one of the best resources in terms of resources um, that I know of for me personally is just a good study Bible. Uh, those notes at the bottom, the ESV study Bible is my, is my, the one I use a lot. Um, the, just the notes, a lot of those are just fleshing out and, and drawing attention to the significance of details. Uh, and so I'll, I'll do that as I'm, as I'm reading scripture. But honestly, I think, I think one of the things is we're talking about learning the skill of, of mining detail in scripture, but also part of what we're learning is just, is just how to um, uh, resonate with the written word in general. And so a lot of that for me is, is trying to read well, trying to read classics, trying to read uh, literature that has endured the, the test of time and is, and is beautifully written, uh, spending time with poetry, uh, reading poetry out loud, uh, you know, th anything that can help you kind of, um, you know, be, be growing in, always growing in your familiarity of, of the turning of phrases and how language works uh, and how communication works. Um, what would you say? Um, those are great. That's really good. I think adding um, a couple of things that I, I would add, Robert Alter has a great um translation of the psalms that i love and we didn't get into a lot of that in terms of songs today but that's been a place where i feel like he because he knows the original language places where you can get past that translation and start to really hear the story as a first reader might have heard it um, really helped me to engage the imagination ellen davis is another one um, she has a really beautiful study on the book of ruth that i've loved and things like it mm -hmm. So. Yeah, Eugene Peterson is another name that comes to mind, and Frederick Buechner as well are both people who have written a lot about the narrative of Scripture and really tried to mine um, the stories. Um, yeah. Yes? Yeah, it's so hard to slow down, isn't it? I mean, just to, to get quiet enough to really hear the text. And I, I think one, one thing that's been helpful practically for me is just like starting out a time of prayer or meditation, asking 
like tr- being conscious of not doing the work. Like I'm not coming here to do the work, but the spirit is ready to do the work. And I think it's, it's like a practice for us as people because that's so hard. But when we develop relationships and we have a meal together, like, I don't know what the time to it, it, the fellowship time is, but that feels like that's important because if your fellowship time is restful and you're not trying to work really hard, but you're giving each other space and listening well, that will also fuel time where when you're studying the word, you, you can really listen and be part of it. So I, that's a couple of practical thoughts. <laughs> so the question is, how has pain and heartbreak affected imagination? None of you? us have any of that, though, yeah, right? I don't, know <laughs> what, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, you know, I think one of the things that uh, suffering grants is it releases your grip on needing everything to be watertight, uh, all of your doctrinal ducks to be in a row, without having to give up orthodoxy, but being able to say, there are, there are certain things that will remain in the category of mystery and even paradox in this life that um, I... That, that no one will ever speak a, the, the perfect word of encouragement that will resolve the whole thing for me. Um, a lot of, um, I don't want to speak for Sandra, but you know, a lot of my life has, has, especially in recent years, has involved a lot of suffering, uh, a lot of affliction. Uh, and um, and it's, it's fundamentally transformed a lot of the, the ways that I think. Uh, there were a lot of things that when I was 22... I knew that I knew that I knew. And now I don't know. You know, uh, I, I'm a Presbyterian. I believe in the covenant. Uh, I have kids that are teenagers, and I don't know where all of them are spiritually, and I don't know what to do with that. I baptized them all, you know, and I believe in covenant baptism, and I believe that the Lord, you know, is, is you know, faithful to the ch- I believe that the Lord is a better parent than me and that he loves my kids more than I do. And uh, I am in a place where I am having to trust him with things that when anybody tries to give me an easy answer, uh, it just rings hollow. Uh, even though my, I'm, not, I'm not cynical and, and I'm not... Uh, Doubting or disbelieving, I'm just uh, at a place where I think I think one of the things suffering does is it uh, is it is it exposes some of the categories that seem to be so watertight as maybe not being that way, uh, which I think is circling back to what we talked about. I think is one of the the kindnesses of the Lord by giving us His Word largely in the form of story rather than edict, uh, because because there's so much in story that is. And so many of the stories are, are unresolved. The rich young ruler went away sad. But that's an ellipsis and not a period, right? What happened after he went away? How did he deal with the sorrow? How did he process the things that Jesus had said? Um, yeah, it's... The Lord in his wisdom leads us into things in life where we, we suffer and we experience affliction and we come face to face with mortality. 
I don't know anybody who would look at those things and say it was all for nothing and I didn't, I didn't learn a darn thing. You know, it's, it, the, those, are, those are formative times. Um, and yet, they're also sacred. It's sacred ground. You know, you want to take off your shoes when, when people are telling you those stories because it's a holy thing that's happening in that moment. Um, but, um, yeah, I think, I think without suffering, without affliction, there are certain things we would never understand the same. You know, we, we, we see through a lens, through a lens of suffering in a way that's different. Um, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, one of the benefits teachers have, preachers and teachers, is you have the benefit of time. Uh, you know that you don't have to do everything in one sitting. And so I think very cumulatively, I, when I'm studying and I see details, I'll, when I'm reading a text, I'll, I'll a lot of times highlight or circle something that's kind of a, oh, I'm going to get more into that. I don't, I'm not sure I understand what, what's happening there. I want to understand that a little bit better um, and kind of mine that. So a lot of that stuff ends up on the cutting room floor. You know, you, you edit it out because of, of time. Um, and so you pick your spots but it's still, it becomes, for, for you as the teacher, as the one who's preparing, you go into it with this richer understanding so that even as you're choosing what to talk about or you circle back to something or you decide to inject something in because in the moment you're realizing, actually, that detail wasn't in my outline, but it really belongs based on how, how it seems like it's going in the room right now. You can bring that stuff in. Um, but I think, you know, I think it's a marathon and not a sprint. And I think... That's that's a freedom as a teacher to say, all right, we'll just keep we'll keep bringing them in and we'll keep um, we'll keep, you know, mining these things. So do we have time for one more? We OK, we'll do. <laughs> I appreciate it. You. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. So the, well, the question I'll, I'll stick with the last one is: is what comes first, context or imagination? When you're dealing with a biblical text, context comes first because otherwise, you can imagine whatever the heck you want, right? And 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 it doesn't it doesn't matter. It's a free for all. Context is helpful because then it helps you imagine the scene, and then that's where you begin to see where it overlays into the culture that you are in, in particular, whether it's an African culture or a suburban culture or or. Um, any of that. Hey, this has been wonderful. Uh, we're going to close by singing a song. Um, and by we, I mean Sandra is going to should we, close. Should we pot? We could do it. We'll Let's do, do it. it. Let's do it. Okay, we'll yeah. sing, a, sing a chorus. We'll just like process out singing together. Like, I'll be like the Pied Piper. <laughs> Uh, let's just sing this together. This is from Jeremiah 31. We will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things. We will say together. We will feast. And we We will say together.
Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast. For more gospel-centered resources, visit thegospelcoalition.org.